0: and welcome back to Edible Ocean Podcast with Professor Tony Winson. I'm Edith, Professor Tony's audio and production assistant. Today we're really happy to have Karen Riston on the show. She's the executive director of Living Ocean Society, a nonprofit ocean conservation organization on the BC coast right here in Canada. She has worked in the environmental movement in BC since 1994 when she joined the Sierra Legal Defense Fund, which is now called EcoJustice to practice environmental law with a specialty in fisheries and First Nations issues. Living Oceans has been a leader in the effort to protect Canada's Pacific coast since they formed in 1998. Today, Karen shares her thoughts about conservation and talks about the successes of the organization, as well as campaigns she wishes had been more successful. Um, There are bits in the interview where she and Professor Tony were having sound issues, so I might pop in once or twice just to fill in the gaps. Okay, here we go. Karen Riston.
1: Karen, if I could, maybe if you could just uh, give me a brief history of the organization, just a a brief historical overview.
2: Certainly. Living Ocean Society was founded in the little fishing village of Sointula on uh, Northern Vancouver Island, just off Northern Vancouver Island. It was founded in 1998 by Jennifer Lash. Um, Jennifer's concern at the time was that although we had an Oceans Act and the requirement to create marine protected areas, there was really no mechanism within government that was making that happen. So that was one of the huge pushes toward um, creating the organization, was to just get some policy development going and some um, marine protected areas in place. She was also very concerned about fishing. How We Fish Matters is one of our early publications, um, trying to work with fishermen in her local community to improve fishing practices for the greater sustainability of all marine life.
1: Since then, how, how if you could bring it sort of up to date, would have been, well, you have alliances with other organizations, I guess? And
2: yes, we do work in coalition uh, on most of our uh, campaigns today we've been involved in a number of different campaigns over the years Um, marine planning and protected areas i've mentioned already we became involved with uh, climate change uh, campaigning when it became apparent that the ocean acidification rate was uh, increasing and so we worked in coalition with all of the groups that were intervening on the pipeline hearings for both northern gateway and Trans Mountain and our role in that was to bring expert evidence forward uh, as to the impacts there would be from the increased tanker traffic and or the spills uh, on marine life. We also are deeply involved in the campaign to stop salmon farming on this coast. That has been a, a scourge of the wild salmon populations for 30 years and we think we're finally close. On the sustainable seafood front, we collaborated with uh, five other organizations originally to create Sea Choice, which has been campaigning for sustainable seafood in the marketplace, using market mechanisms rather than uh, strictly advocacy with government uh, to try to improve seafood sustainability. So there we, we began by educating consumers, providing them with the Seafood Watch guide to sustainable seafood and quickly realized that it would be more effective to reach out to the retailers and work through them. So our role today is more or less as a watchdog on the retailers. We check up on them annually as to how they're fulfilling their own commitments to sustainable seafood. Most of them have them. They're not all walking their talk. So we, uh, we check them out annually and give them recommendations for how they can improve their sustainability. And we also keep watch on the certifications that purport to guarantee to us that our seafood is sustainable. They're not always performing as you would expect, so we try to keep them in line.
1: Yes, there's been uh, efforts recently by Marine Stewardship Council, right, to uh, uh, address some of the concerns and so on. And I guess, have you been uh, involved with that as a stakeholder or whatever?
2: Yes, Sea Choice has a representative on the Make Stewardship Count uh, Steering Committee. And we have been closely involved in monitoring the changes that are required there.
1: Could you talk a little bit about some of the, say, achievements that you've seen to date? Uh, you mentioned uh, the salmon farming. I know there's been an effort to close the Discovery Island salmon farming operations. Uh, but uh, uh, apparently a judge has set back that effort. And anyway, if you could just talk a little bit about some achievements you've had in and also with reference to the salmon farming?
2: The first achievement I would point to during my tenure was the um, cancellation of the Northern Gateway pipeline. That uh, was largely, I think, because of our efforts at the hearings and subsequently lobbying government to, uh, to see the light. That was
1: So, so you were quite in, involved with the hearings around that?
2: Yes, we were interveners in the hearings and we adduced a great deal of uh, expert evidence as to the impacts on marine life from that particular plan. We also got involved in the um, shipping safety aspects of that plan uh, because that's another thing we've studied in some depth is is shipping on the BC coast, the types of of vessels that come and go here and the kinds of impacts they have on marine life. In our Sea Choice configuration, we worked with the BC Trawlers Association to change the the way that trawlers fish, bottom trawlers. Uh, They were pulling up all kinds of coral and sponge quite rare corals and sponges from particular areas of the BC coast and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans felt that they couldn't really regulate the fishery to avoid those impacts because they didn't know where the corals and sponges were. So we hired up a submarine and a bunch of researchers and went and found the corals for them, uh, mapped them out and entered into an agreement directly with the um, trawl Fishery Association. Uh, to amend the way they fished. And so it was simply a matter of creating a footprint that did not impact the corals and sponges, which they were happy to do once it was pointed out to them how and where. And so that agreement was subsequently adopted by Fisheries and Oceans Canada. And it is, I think, unique in the world uh, in in terms of an agreement to protect coral and sponge reefs, so I think that's a big accomplishment. That's not one I take any personal credit for, it happened before my time.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, uh, well, maybe not a well-known story, but incredible story, that's very interesting. Yeah, I didn't know about that.
2: And then of course, moving up to the present day, we have a government in place that has made a number of commitments on the subject of seafood sustainability that uh, we totally applaud, and we just hope we can see them come to fruition. I'm thinking in particular of the boat-to-plate traceability mandate that the fisheries, well, fisheries and um, other ministries of government have in place. That one seems to be lagging. We definitely need better traceability and better labelling of the product, seafood products so that consumers who do care and want to make a difference with their purchases have the information they need to be able to do that. The other mandate that we're quite delighted to see, of course, is the fisheries minister's mandate to terminate salmon farming on the B.C. coast. They tend to view it as transitioning salmon farming, and I think we're just about to find out what that magic word was supposed to mean. Um, My concern is that she may settle for uh, putting the farms into some kind of new technology that is still in the ocean, and the problem with that is there is no technology that's operating in the ocean anywhere in the world that would protect our wild salmon from the bacterial and viral diseases that spew out of those farms. The ones that um, are operating uh, in Europe primarily, this is the semi-closed systems that are operating in Europe, still release their liquid effluent directly to the ocean. It's far too expensive for them to treat liquid effluent. So they may collect the solids and use those for other purposes, which is great, it's an improvement. But it doesn't answer the question here, which is, the transmission of virus and per- and bacterial disease to wild salmon.
1: So is there um, much effort by corporations here uh, to engage in the uh, land-based salmon aquaculture at this point in BC?
2: Not so much salmon. There are several steelhead uh, operations. I shouldn't say several. There are two that I'm aware of. Uh, that are trying to get started right now. They're in the permitting phase and hopefully will be going ahead soon. The companies that farm uh, Atlantic salmon here on this coast are deeply invested in ocean tenures all over the world and they are not interested in switching to land-based. And I can see that in places like Norway where the economy is really heavily dependent, certainly in the rural areas, on the salmon farms that are there and they just don't have the horizontal land space to really replicate that volume on land. Canada, the situation is totally different. There are international investors, billions of dollars worth of investment flowing into closed containment all over the world. There are more than 20 countries uh, that are currently hosting land-based salmon farms. And there are, at my last count, over 100 projects underway almost equal to the production, the global production, of uh, farm salmon from the ocean. Now, how many years it's going to take them to get into full production and actually replace that volume, I don't know. Or equal that volume, I don't imagine they'll ever replace it. Um, but still, it's a, it's a huge movement globally. And I think the investors see that many of the variables that plague the open ocean net pen are eliminated with the land-based. The farmers these days are losing all kinds of money to environmental events, algal blooms, cold snaps, hot snaps, um, disease, virus, uh, and sea lice, which is the main scourge of salmon farming, all those things can be controlled in a land-based farm. So, if you have the right redundancy built into the system, you shouldn't ever have to suffer those losses.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting, and I, I didn't realize the uh, land-based uh, investments were as extensive as you mentioned. I, I'm aware of a few big projects, but it sounds like it's going to be um, uh, pretty big in the in the in the future anyway. Um, could you? Is there anything you can say about um, the Discovery Islands, sort of the efforts to shut that down or transition it, as you said, uh, because I had read that a judge had sort of halted that or put some, some brakes on that process?
2: Yes, we were interveners in that process, and I can tell you that that judgment has been misreported quite deliberately by industry reporting sources for some time. The the actual effect of the court order was to say that Bernadette Jordan, then fisheries minister, erred when she made a blanket prohibition against transferring fish into the net pens. Regardless of the merit of that ruling, Bernadette Jordan went on to deny every individual application for a transfer because she was concerned with the First Nations objections to the salmon farms in the area and had information before her although unfortunately not before the court as to the danger that those farms pose to wild fish that order is still in place so there can be no blanket prohibitions on transfers of stock into the farms but minister jordan since uh, minister murray since she took over from bernadette jordan has maintained the the uh, fish-free status of the discovery islands Most recently in her decision in June, she reissued their licenses for a period up till ah, June, I believe, of next year um, in order to engage in appropriate consultation with the companies. Uh, But she has not approved any fish transfer licenses, so there have been effectively no Atlantic salmon grown in the Discovery Islands since the late spring of 2020.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that that's not widely known for sure. Well, some uh, yeah, some really positive news uh, that you've talked about here and uh, some positive developments, which is which great to know about. Have there been any areas or efforts uh, which have, you say, fallen short and you wish you could have achieved more uh, at this point? Is there any particular campaign or whatever issue that uh, you would hope you could have had a better um, outcome?
2: Most definitely, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It ought never be.
1: Okay, any thoughts about how you think that might uh, potentially impact marine environment in BC? I
2: have a lot of thoughts about that. In the event of a spill, what is at risk is most likely the Fraser River Estuary. That's just a function of where along the shipping route an accident is most likely to occur. That's been calculated by experts. We know the spot. It would result in an oil spill going up the Fraser River with the tidal flood and fouling a great deal of fish habitat, probably killing any juvenile stage organism of any sort that was in the water column, uh, and fouling the shoreline for hundreds of miles. And this is extremely important migratory bird habitat I think our expert estimated that some million seabirds would be at risk, uh, and likely hundreds of thousands of them die as a result of a spill that happened in that area. The amount of economic damage that would do is almost incalculable. The damage it would do to marine ecosystems would persist, as we now know from the science from the Exxon Valdez spill, for decades, certainly, if not a century. So, yeah. There's lots of impacts from from a spill, from the ordinary activities of shipping. We can expect to see increased fouling of the Port of Vancouver um, from the emissions from the ships. Uh, we can expect that the noise from an additional some 700 tanker trips per year will affect all marine life. We, there's evidence now that fish respond negatively to increased noise in their environment. I'm also obviously extremely concerned about the southern resident killer whales which are clinging to the precipice of extinction.
1: So you're saying there's there's expected to be up to 700 tankers a year that are carting this, uh, I don't know if it's oil or bitumen at this point, uh, it's probably bitumen I guess, but it, it's being exported in other words, right?
2: It is being exported and 700 additional tanker trips in and out. So probably an additional 400 tankers, a, probably a total 400 uh, tankers a year going in and out of the Port of Vancouver. At present, we have somewhere between, I think at a high uh, 60 and most years uh, 10, 12, 14. That's the kind of tanker traffic we've seen in this port. So, So
1: a major ramping up of tanker traffic is, is going to be the, uh, the, one of the key results of this completion of this pipeline
2: absolutely will be and a a huge increase in underwater noise between the tankers themselves the escort vessels that are required to accompany them to hopefully avoid the accident Um, and they all have to pass right through you know territory that is important to the killer whales not their critical habitat they'll be kept out of that but impacts from noise will definitely uh, extend to impacting the critical habitat
1: Yes, and that, that would be habitat of the southern killer whale population, I believe, which is endangered and um, very few numbers survive at this point, I believe, right?
2: Yeah, that's true. There, I think today numbered uh, 74 whales in that population. It's extremely small for a viable population. Is there
1: any other uh, areas, campaign, whatever that you can think of where success hasn't uh, uh, been happening <laughs> uh, up to date
2: one of the things that I would have liked to have seen would be um, better management plans, better restrictions on the marine protected areas that we do have in Canada. We are proceeding with protecting you know, quantities of ocean, but it's the quality of protection that concerns me. So, for example, uh, the Scotch Islands, Marine National Wildlife Area, was most recently created and we're very happy to see it created this is up at the north tip of vancouver island an incredibly productive area for all kinds of marine mammals and fishes so we're talking the open ocean and the entire area is ringed around with oil and gas drilling leases yeah now some of those have been voluntarily surrendered which was lovely but there still are some there is no restriction on fishing in the marine protected area And the main reason for creating the area was to protect seabird colonies. There's extremely important seabird colonies on these islands. Fishing is one of the major causes of death for seabirds. So you wonder, have we made effective protection? Uh, There's no protection against shipping passing through the marine protected area. So all the shipping noises and emissions that can affect marine life going right through the marine protected area.
1: So, Karen, it seems that there's still a number of extractive activities going on in this marine protected area, the northwest coast of Vancouver Island. And that's, in, that's a problem you're saying, right?
2: It is. And several years back, we had a marine planner on staff who engaged in a, a review of the protections in all of Canada's marine protected areas and compared them with uh, IUCN standards. Hi, it's
0: Edith again. The IUCN stands for the International Union for Conservation of Nature, and it is a membership union that is composed of government and civil society organizations, and they do research, and they have a list of endangered species and a list of standards for conservation, and that
2: is what Karen is talking about right here. Okay, back to her describing the types of protection and classifying them. So we compared Canada's marine protected areas to their classification guidelines and found that most of Canada's marine protected areas are overstated in terms of their protection. They don't really offer the kind of protection they say they do. So that paper was actually published. I could get you a citation for it if you're interested in it. But it's that kind of thing. It's creating the the illusion of protection where you haven't necessarily addressed the real issue or created an area that can actually add to biodiversity and add to the the complexity of the environment that marine creatures have to abide in
1: yeah very interesting just a couple more questions uh, karen i'd like to ask you where do you think the organization or the coalition whatever you're involved with is going in in the future at this point
2: I don't see us going away anytime soon because there's certainly new issues cropping up every day that are affecting ocean health. Right now, you know, some of the more recent ones we've uh, started to grapple with are plastic marine debris in, in the ocean, um, ocean uh, pollution from ships by virtue of the strange fact that they've installed scrubbers to scrub their air pollutants out. But what the scrubbers do is simply turn it into an extremely corrosive product that's discharged directly into the ocean.
1: Yes, there's been some uh, press around cruise ships doing that up along the coast of B.C. and, and Alaska.
2: Cruise ships and other ships now, too, because there's an International Maritime Organization directive that says they have to reduce their air pollution. So instead of moving to more expensive, cleaner fuels, most of them simply installed scrubbers so that they can scrub the pollutants, in this case, into the ocean. I don't find that an acceptable solution. Um, climate change and ocean acidification are not going away as issues and continue to require our our greatest efforts to try to move these big levers in the economy and the political will uh, to try to save the ocean.
1: Yeah, I think you've you've really answered most of my next question. But I, I guess I'd like to ask you in closing, what do you think are the biggest one, two, or three issues facing marine environments and ultimately the planet, I guess, since we're so dependent on the marine environment, even if we don't know it. Uh, what do you think are the, the top, say, three issues that you, in, in your view, given your extensive experience that are f- is facing the marine environment?
2: Climate change, climate change, and climate change. There is no bigger issue. And everything else, uh, you know, would not be an issue if it were not for the fact that we are poisoning the ocean with carbon
1: yes so poisoning the ocean with carbon um, and that has led to could you just elaborate just a wee
2: bit on that the ocean's been absorbing the carbon that we've been putting into the atmosphere ever since the industrial revolution probably since before that but it's stored up so much of it now that it's becoming more acidic than it was and that is extremely difficult for any creature that depends on a hard shell. So everything from plankton through to, you know, crabs and lobsters are impacted by uh, increasing acidification in the waters and probably billions of other creatures too. It's just, I happen to really like crab and lobster and oysters and mussels and clams. And these are things you used to be able to gather on our shorelines yourself. Well, not the lobsters, but you can't any longer.
1: Really, you don't see those as much anymore in the B.C. shoreline?
2: Mussels, yes, but it's becoming increasingly difficult to find oysters anywhere, and oyster farmers are having to start their larvae and grow them to a certain stage on land in closed facilities and nursery facilities because they, they just can't grow them on a string in the ocean anymore and expect they'll be able to farm shell- form shells. So, yeah, it's having real economic impacts, and it's having... Largely unseen impacts on uh, ocean life.
1: So beyond uh, acidification, uh, other issues you would point to related to the warming of the climate? Thinking, you know, coral reefs and so on. uh, Not
2: really so much an an issue with the corals in our neck of the woods, though. Um, The coral bleaching is mostly happening in tropical and subtropical zones. We're seeing a lot of shifting of species as a result of ocean warming, uh, particularly these major events like the blob in 2016 that was extremely high temperature. Um, That's resulted in uh, shifting of some southern populations northward. Uh, It may well be encouraging the invasions of invasive species like the green crab, which is now all up and down our coast. And it can result in competition with native species, for example, the green crab and the Dungeness crab. The green crabs have pretty much wiped out the Dungeness in every place they've taken over.
1: I just want to ask you one more question in in terms of the impact of climate uh, warming. uh, Have we had issues around dead zones uh, in the ocean, as we've had in uh, so many other areas of the globe, uh, like the Gulf of Mexico, for instance, and off uh, the state of Oregon, Uh, Has that been an issue off the British Columbia coast?
2: Not that I'm aware of, but I I can't honestly say that I'd be an authority on that subject.
1: Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Karen. That's been uh, super informative and very valuable, and I I think we all benefit very much from uh, hearing about this from you. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks for the opportunity. And that's it.
0: Thanks for listening to Edible Ocean podcast. Tony Winson hosted and did the recruiting for the interviews. I'm Edith Wilson, Tony's audio and production assistant. I also manage our Instagram, such as it is. <laughs> Follow us at EdibleOcean_Podcast. Follow Professor Tony on Twitter at industrial diet. This podcast was made with support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada.